I've got three little kids, as a lot of you know, and my oldest son, Nate, is almost five, and he is a, he's like his dad. He's got a little bit of an obsessive, compulsive tendency, and right now, his obsession is Star Wars. Um, we are a, a family that is constantly deciding if we're going to be on the light side or on the dark side. Every discussion, Dad, today, are you the dark side or the light side? And, you know, I think, yeah, feeling pretty dark right now, Nate. Next time you ask me that, it's definitely going to be dark because I'm getting that question a lot. And we have to fight. You know, I'm Darth Vader or one of the Darths. And uh, Nate's always the good guy. But the issue has been very prevalent in the Evans household in the last few months. That is until Nate finds his newest obsession. But right now it's Star Wars. The issue of light versus dark is a big, big deal. It's something that we're thinking about all the time. Um, the issue of light versus dark, really, uh, despite my funny story about Nate reminding me of it all the time, really is the big deal in this text. Uh, it's a big deal throughout the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you've read through the New Testament a little bit, you'll know that the Bible presents very clearly two ways to live. There's following the way of God, the light way, and then there's going down the dark paths, the paths that are in rebellion against God. And Oftentimes, the Bible presents those two paths and the consequences for us and asks us to walk, to walk accordingly. And really, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing tonight as we reach Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we've been studying this letter for a few months now, a few weeks, a few months, and we've seen that um, the first half of the letter is Paul telling us what the gospel is and how awesome it is and how glorious it is that Jesus was sent by God to bear the sins of humanity on his own head at the cross, and that through Jesus, through faith in him, we can all be forgiven. We all receive new identities. We're one in Christ. One new humanity is the church. And then Paul gets to Ephesians 4, and he says, in light of everything I've told you so far, walk. Walk in a manner worthy of all the things that I've been writing about. Because Jesus has saved you, act like it. And then for the rest of the letter, chapters 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, Paul works out in some detail what it looks like to live in light of the gospel. And that's where we found, find ourselves right now. Um, and I want you to remember again, the operative metaphor for these chapters is walk. It is not run. <laughs> the Christian life, the process of transformation and change, is not a speed race. It's not a microwave process. It's a crockpot process. It takes a long time. Change is gradual. Paul doesn't say run. He says walk. Paul doesn't say skip because Christian life and change is not always fun. In fact, oftentimes it feels like death because we're putting to death the old part of us that was formerly captured by, by our rebellion against God. It's hard. Paul says walk. Walk and be patient. And tonight, he talks about walking in the light. We're going to talk a little bit tonight about what it looks like to walk in the light as opposed to walking in the darkness. That's where we're headed. But before I get into the text, let me remind you of one more thing. And this is really the key thing to get. So I don't want you to miss this. Most people, listen, most people think that becoming a Christian looks like this. Um, You begin to live in a certain way. That's step A. And then you begin to call yourself a Christian, step B. 
That's the way most of the world views Christianity. You start to do certain things and behave in a certain way and operate under certain rules and norms, and then you become a Christian. But the Bible says actually the exact opposite. The Bible doesn't say that you start living in a certain way and then you become a Christian. The Bible says you become a Christian and then you start living in a certain way. You see, the Bible doesn't say work really hard to become sons of light. Fight away the darkness and become sons of light so that you will be children of light. No, the Bible says through Jesus you are already in the light if you've trusted him. Therefore, live like it. Tim talked last week uh, very well a little bit about what that means. When we understand who we are in Jesus, only then can we begin to live as who we are. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. He's saying if Jesus has changed your heart, if you're a believer in him, if you know what grace is... Then you begin to live in the ways that Paul talks about here. He doesn't say God's telling you to obey and he's not going to be pleased with you until you do so. No, he says Jesus obeyed for you, therefore God is pleased with you. So begin to live in that way. The way Paul frames that tonight, the idea of living as if we are already children of light, is really walking in light or walking in darkness. And so as we look at this text, I want to just break it down for you really simply. Four ideas, four points tonight, okay? We're going to look about uh, at what it looks like to walk in the light. What is the exact point? Walking in the light. Yeah, no, sorry. Walking on the dark side, Darth Vader style, right? Walking on the dark side, the results of walking on the dark side. And then we'll look at walking on the light side and the results of walking on the light side. Okay, so let's dive in. Walking on the dark side. Verse 3 of chapter 5, Paul starts there. He's been writing for the last few verses about all sorts of things, giving us all sorts of commandments, all sorts of ideas about how we are to live. And then here in verse 3 of chapter 5, look at the text. He, He sort of sums it up for us, right? With two things. He says there's two things if you're going to walk in the light that you must avoid. Sexual immorality and covetousness or greed, basically. Those are the two big ideas. Paul's thinking here about the comprehensiveness that these two sins, that these two ways of living, how they comprehensively affect us. And notice what he says there. He says these things must not even be named among you. In other words, the culture of the people of God should be radically different than the culture of the world. So he says, avoid sexual immorality. That word is the word in the Greek, the original language, porneia. We get our word pornography from that. And that is what I call a junk drawer term. You know, you have a junk drawer, you open it up, there's all sorts of things in there. You can pull out a pen or a pair of scissors or whatever. This term is a junk drawer term. It means a lot of different things. Basically, when Paul says avoid sexual immorality, he means any sort of sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage falls under porneia. Um, Anything else that's sexually deviant means sexual immorality. So he's saying, don't do that, avoid that. Children of light do not engage in sexual immorality, and they don't engage in what he calls covetousness or greed. And most of you probably know what, those, what greed is. It's, it's the idea of wanting more and more and more possessions and money all the time, no matter how much you already have. Flee, run away from Let not even be named among you sexual immorality and covetousness or greed. Those are the two big sins, the two big ways that we walk in the dark side. And remember, Paul's writing to Christians here, okay? 
He's writing to people that have believed in Jesus, whose lives have been changed, and he's still telling them, don't do these things, implying that these things are still struggles for us who are believers in Jesus. These are still temptations. These are still issues that are going to crop up in our lives. He's saying that belongs to the former way of life. Don't do them. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. Why these two sins? You know, there's a billion sins that Paul could have pointed out at this point in Ephesians and said, don't do that, don't be like that. But he picks two, sexual immorality and greed. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, I'm sure. You can probably come up with some really good ones. My idea, uh, what I want to share briefly is, is this. The reason I think Paul picks these two sins is because they demonstrate for us the comprehensiveness of sin's effects on us. And notice the word Paul uses there in verse, where is it, 5. It's in parentheses. He says, don't everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or covetous, that is what? An idolater. An idolater. These two sins of sexual immorality and greed manifest for us the idolatrous nature of our own hearts. You know, most of us think of sin as a list of things we shouldn't do and a list of things we should do, and sin definitely is that. But the Bible speaks of sin in a much more profound and insidious way. Sin is really fundamentally the project that we all do of worshiping things or people or ideas that aren't the living God of the universe. And that's exactly what's happening when we engage in sexual immorality and greed. We're taking good things, sex, possessions, these are good things, and we're making them ultimate things in our worship of them, and that is a bad thing, okay? We take good things, we make them ultimate things, and that is a bad thing. Take sexual immorality, for example. You know, sex is a gift of God. We are not prudes as Christians. Sex is awesome. Sex is great. I'm not preaching on sex, but it's a very good thing within the confines that God has established for us. But what we do with it is we make it God. We make it ultimate. We pursue it as if it's the ultimate greatest thing in the universe, and that leads to us not flourishing and experiencing fulfillment and relational satisfaction. It leads, rather, to us destroying other people and destroying ourselves. And greed is the same way. Money is not evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love, right? The love of money, idolatry of money, is the root of all evil. God has called us. In Genesis chapter 2, God said, tend to the garden, create culture, thrive, build cities for yourselves, make music, produce, have an economy. These are good things. But we take that idea that God has given us and we make it ultimate. We pursue money and possessions to the expense of everything else, to every other person. We make it a God. And sex and money are really, really bad gods. Idolatry never pays off. And so Paul says, avoid sexual immorality, avoid idolatry, excuse me, avoid greed, because those are two of the most most visible manifestations of this idea of idolatry, of how we are always looking for something or someone else to rule on the throne room of our hearts, other than God, our Creator and our Redeemer. So Paul says, don't walk on the dark side. Flee these things. Avoid sexual immorality. Avoid covetousness and greed. And then he tells us, secondly, the results. The results of walking on the dark side. And these are not pleasant verses. 
But let's read them anyway. Verse 5, you may be sure of this. Now that's very emphatic. It's as if Paul's writing in all caps here. He's got caps lock. Don't you hate it, by the way, when someone texts you in all caps? That drives me crazy. That's like what Paul's doing here. This is all caps. It's emphatic. He's saying everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, first result, has no, what? Inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The first result of walking on the dark side is not having an inheritance in the kingdom. Now, there's something I want you to be clear about here, however. Now, this is one of those texts that terrify. (laughs) It's a text that terrifies. But but Paul is not saying, listen, Paul is not saying, if you've ever in your life fallen or struggled with either of these sins, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Slams the door in your face. No, 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 no. He doesn't say those who struggle with sexual morality and impurity and greed have no inheritance. He says those who are, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous has no inheritance. The person who struggles with these sins is not going to be consigned to hell forever. The person, however, who doesn't struggle with these sins, the person for whom these sins are utterly normative, the person for whom feels the, the person who, who feels no conscience stricken uh, no conscience stricken state at all when it comes to these things is the person that's going to be excluded from God's inheritance. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're hearing these things and these texts, you read them and you think, oh my gosh, I'm guilty of Luke just said pornea is a junk drawer term. I'm sure I've, I'm somewhere in the junk drawer. You're right. <laughs> you are. So repent. I mean, I hate to be hell and brimstone here, but repent. That's really the practical application. The Christian life is a life of struggling with this sin and repenting and believing the gospel, okay? The person who doesn't do that, the person who doesn't feel bad, the person who doesn't struggle, the person who gives themselves over to these sins is the person of whom Paul is speaking in verse 5. They're walking on the dark side, and the first consequences of it the first consequence of it is no inheritance. The second consequence of it, it gets more fun. Okay, so hang with me. Verse 6, let no one deceive you. Again, very emphatic. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, that is these sins that I've been writing about, the wrath of God. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, we push back against that idea. And frankly, I don't blame, I don't blame you. It's a hard idea. The idea that the second consequence, the second result of walking on the dark side is God's wrath coming upon you. Our our culture, frankly, hates that idea, and most cultures in the history of the world have hated that idea. Part of the reason we hate the idea of wrath from God is because we misunderstand what the word means. You know, when when I think of wrath, I don't know about you, but when I think of wrath, I tend to think of like... um, my dad in his worst moments growing up when he would kind of fly off the handle and scream and yell at his kids. Maybe you think of something like that. You think of like a human who's raging and angry and vindictive. You know, that, that's not the way the Bible speaks about God's wrath. God's wrath, according to the Bible, is his, it's his settled opposition to all that is evil and wrong in the world. It's his settled opposition to all that is evil and wrong in the world. God is not a raging lunatic like your dad was when he got mad at you when you were in fourth grade. 
God is settled and firm in his hostility against all that is evil. And that's what Paul is thinking about when he writes about God's wrath. But there's still pushback on the issue. You know, I have conversations about this all the time. You might have them too with coworkers or associates or family members. You might be thinking right now, I don't buy this one bit, Luke. Um, You know, most people think, and I, I talk to people all the time that think this, and I respect this position. Uh, they'll say, you know, I'm really, a, I'm really a pretty good person. Some people definitely deserve God's wrath. The Nazis, God's wrath, legitimate. You know, what's happening in uh, the Ukraine right now? Some wrath needs to be dumped out on that country, right? People, some people deserve God's wrath, but not me. I try really to be pretty good. I'm basically a decent human. I do things well. I've never been incarcerated. Uh, I didn't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do. Um, I've done pretty good for myself. God's wrath isn't for me. Let me, let me try to argue against that idea with an illustration. Um, imagine, imagine, you know, a poor widow who grows up uh, a young boy. She has a young boy, one son. She's all alone. She's very poor. And she raises her son and she teaches her son three things. She says, I want you to be industrious. I want you to work hard. I want you to be frugal. And I want you to be honest, right? Industry, frugality, honesty. She teaches that and she sacrifices and she makes, she makes effort to raise him well. And eventually he graduates high school and she's able to send him to college with great sacrifice and great pain. And he turns out to be very successful. He has a wonderful life. Uh, he makes a lot of money. Say he's a stock trader maybe on Wall Street. And he does all of the things that his mother told him to do. He's honest, he's frugal, and he's industrious. But he never speaks to her again. You know, maybe, maybe he sends her a Christmas card from time to time. But there's no emails, there's no phone calls, there's no visits, there's no communication. If you look at that man's life and you think, is that man a good person? Is he doing well? You're going to say no. He's following the letter of the law, but he's completely cut out of his life the one person to whom he owes everything. Now, I wonder if it's a similar issue with us and God. A lot of the time we think because we obey some of the rules, we're doing just fine, but we completely cut God relationally out of our lives. Listen, that doesn't mean that you're good to go. It means that you are culpable. It means that you are guilty. It means that you need to flee to Jesus for repentance. Flee to Jesus for grace. Because for those who walk on the dark side, Paul does not mince words. They have no share in God's kingdom and the wrath of God is upon them. But, but verse 8, he says, you are no longer in that world if you have trusted in Jesus At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light. You are light. Jesus has saved you. He has shed his blood for your sin to be forgiven. You have a new lease on life. Therefore, walk. You see it? Walk as children of light. So third, real quick, stay with me. Let me show you a few things about walking on the light side. Okay, walking on the light side. Paul talks about that in the next few verses, and we're going to look at this more next week. Real quickly, I just want to mention one thing. Verse 8 and 9, he says, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right 
and true. So walking in the, in, walking in the light means that we are associating ourselves with and pursuing what is good and what is right and what is true. And we're going to talk more about that next time. But one thing I want to point out here. Why does Paul use that word fruit? You ever wondered that? He does that in Galatians as well. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of light. Why doesn't Paul just say, you know, the characteristics of light? Or the attributes of light? Or the way people who are in the light should be? He uses the word fruit. Now, I'm, I'm honestly stealing this point from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, a lot of other people have stolen it from him too. But I think he makes a brilliant point here. He, he says that Paul uses the word fruit because growing fruit is something that is gradual. You know, think about it. You don't, I'm not a gardener, but I'm pretty sure this is the case. You don't like plant, um, what, what's something you plant? Carrots. You don't plant carrots and then pull out your lawn chair and sit down next to the carrot patch and wait. You know, grab a cold drink of tea and just sit there and wait and watch the carrots grow. Because the growth of carrots, that's not a fruit, it's a vegetable. Same point, I know. <laughs> Strawberries. We'll edit that part out of the sermon and just go to where I said strawberries. Strawberries. None of, the, none of these organic things that come out of the ground that I will buy in a grocery store. Um, they, don't, they don't grow immediately. They grow gradually. You know, it's similar with our children. When I take my kids to go see their grandparents and say their grandparents haven't seen them for maybe six months, what's the first, one of the first things the grandparents always say, you are getting so big. I can't believe it. And, you know, I know that they're bigger, like I existentially am aware of it, but I'm not like sitting there literally watching Nate grow or Ainsley grow. Unless you have a newborn, then you can almost literally watch them grow. But their change is gradual. It takes place over time. It's, it's organic. And that's part of, I think, what Paul means when he says fruit of light. He wants you to know that these characteristics are going to appear in your life over time. It's gradual. Remember, we're talking about walking. You don't immediately become a fully bloomed strawberry bush the day you become a Christian. But it's not only gradual, it's also inevitable. If the fruit is alive, it will grow. If the carrot is being watered by rain and Uh, shined on by the sun, uh, eventually the carrot is going to sprout up. So fruit is a gradual process, but it's also something that does happen, and it's the same with our walking in the light. You're not going to be perfect tomorrow. You're not going to be perfect today, but you are going to be growing if you're a child of the light. You see that? Paul uses the word fruit both to encourage you that change is gradual and to warn you that change is inevitable. So walk as children of light. And then he talks to us about the results. Last thing, the results of walking in the light, on the light side. We'll go down to uh, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful, notice, unfruitful works of darkness. Interesting, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Okay, two results of walking on the light side. Real briefly, first, dark deeds are exposed. And notice he doesn't say, when it says expose them, the them doesn't refer to people who do bad things. The them refers back to the works, the bad things themselves. What Paul's saying here is that when a Christian community, when people who've received grace from Jesus and trusted in him get together and begin to walk in the light, the people around us who are still walking in the darkness, who are still engaged in sexual immorality and covetousness and idolatry, 
Those people, their deeds begin to manifest themselves for what they are. Their, their stench begins to rise, so to speak. Their deeds are exposed. And then when that happens, they are exposed to Jesus. So their deeds are exposed, verse 11, and then they are exposed to the light. These last two verses, 13 and 14, they're not the easiest verses to understand, but I think that's what Paul is saying. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, wake up, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What happens when you as an individual and when we as a people walk on the light side? The people around us who are walking in darkness... Uh, the way that they're living begins to manifest itself. It's exposed. And then the reason we're different is exposed to them. That is Jesus. So as we wrap up, let me just ask a couple of practical application questions of us as we think about walking on the dark side as opposed to walking on the light side. First question, do you know anyone in your life who's walking in the darkness? You know, you might think that this text is teaching that, yeah, yes, I do know those people and I should never speak to them again. Shun them and avoid them. You know, after all, Paul says, do not associate with them. But actually, what that word associate means is do not participate with them in these deeds. That's the literal meaning of that word. It doesn't mean never speak with them again. If you never speak with them again, how are their dark deeds going to be exposed and they in turn be exposed to Jesus? Do you know people? Do you have relationships with people who aren't Christians? What I'm trying to say is that you should. You should. We are lights in the world. But a light can't be a light if darkness isn't around at all. Second question. When you're around the people that you may know who are walking on the dark side, do they know that you're walking in the light or not? In other words, are there dark deeds being exposed? Is there any difference between the way you're living and between the way they're living? Now, that's very difficult. And we've all failed there countless times. And the only thing that's going to change us and make us different is when the gospel begins to take deep root in our hearts and in our lives. When we understand, once again, that we are already children of light, only then do we see change. And only then will the people around us who don't yet know Jesus begin to ask us questions like this. Dude, what is up with you? (laughs) Something has changed. There's something about the way you handle your money that's different. You know, you seem to make a pretty good salary, but, but as far as I can tell, you don't spend it all on yourself. You give money away. You know, that's countercultural. You're generous. You don't work 150 hours a week, but you you intentionally work less than you could to spend time with your family or to do other things. That's different. Are you living like that so that people notice? Is Is your sexual life different enough from the people around you that they notice? Not in, you know what I mean. Is your marriage healthy? Do you love your wife? Do you seek to maintain purity of heart and of eyes when you're out there in the world? People are going to notice because, friends, we're in a world where those things aren't even thought about. They're not given a second thought. Are you walking in the light and is anybody noticing? That's what Paul, that's what Paul calls us to here, friends. He calls us no longer to participate in the darkness, but to be children, but to walk in the light because we are already 
children of light. May it be so of us, by God's grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of the gospel. And Lord, as we see in this passage and in many other parts of your word, there are consequences to the gospel. The greatest consequence is that our sins are forgiven and that we are new people. As we've seen time and time again in Ephesians, we, we have been raised to life from death and we have been made a part of a new family, the church. Things are different with us now, God. And because that's true, Lord, we are now free to obey your law. We're now free to follow the rules that you have set for us for our own good and for our own flourishing. We are now free to walk on the light side. And yet, Father, because the darkness is around us and because vestiges of the darkness are still in us, that is so hard. And so we ask that we would be people who are daily living lives of repentance and lives of turning to see Jesus, Jesus in his glory and in his grace, lives of repentance and faith, so that we will be different from the world. Not so that we can condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through our witness to Christ. Lord, we ask these things of you for our church. We pray that we would be a church where many come to know Jesus, not because we're haughty or arrogant or proud, but because we have a certain humility and generosity and boldness in a very different way from what most of the world sees most of the time. And Lord, this will take the spirit if it's going to happen. And so we beseech you, spirit, to come and do this work in us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.